0: This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear Jordan Stone share insights from the life and ministry of Robert Murray McShane. Jordan is the senior pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in McKinney, Texas. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2019 General Assembly. Let's listen to Jordan Stone as he speaks on the life and legacy of Robert Murray McShane.
1: What I want to do today is try to encourage, especially those of you in here involved in ministry in some way, shape, or form. So, this is not uniquely suited. I tried to do this in a way where this is not uniquely suited to pastoral ministry, even though along the way I'm talking about what McShane would teach us related to gospel ministry. But I think you'll understand as we go through the course of what we want to think about together this afternoon how his emphases in his pastoral ministry ought to be at least i would want to argue emphases in any person involved in service for the kingdom of christ along the way and so hopefully it'll be broadly applicable on those ends Um, if you have a bible you can grab it and turn to it if you want just to read a passage of scripture to start us off uh, this afternoon that rightly has been identified by many people and I would agree with it as very much indicative of McShane's heartbeat and passion when it comes to his ministry. So Second Corinthians chapter 5 is where I want to start us this afternoon. And then from there, we'll kind of launch right into it. And if I can manage our time best, I do hope that we might have 10 minutes or so for any random questions you might have, especially the few of you that might have a lot more awareness of McShane, because he has some unique emphases and unique experiences that often kind of get lost in the popular narrative, and much of that popular narrative is kind of what I'm going to give you related to his biography, since many of you may not know what that popular narrative is. But if you just look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 through 21, a very famous passage, which I'm not going to read all of it. I know Dr. Ferguson, who served on my A doctoral committee that was examining my dissertation on McShane recently did a biographical talk on McShane, and he kind of worked through McShane's life with this passage, because that's how useful it could be. But the only verse I want to center our attention on is just verse 14, because verse 14, in many ways, is the one-verse summary of McShane's heartbeat and passion. It's a famous verse, which of course says this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And it's that first clause, those first phrases that matter most when we're wanting to think about McShane, the love of Christ controls us. So what I'm going to try to do along the way is just give you two lessons that McShane would teach us today. If you could put him in a time machine and move him forward from his death in 1843 to 2019, and if he was able to take a survey of just normal pastoral ministry, normal gospel ministry in our time, I am pretty convinced that he would poke his finger at two things in which we are either lacking, or certainly two things that he would say, keep going and persevere in these things because they ought to be the summary of our ministry. And underneath those things, what I want to argue along the way is what he would talk about as the love of Christ in these things. So let me pray and then we'll uh, dive into what we want to cover over the next hour or so. Father, we thank you for this afternoon. I thank you for these brothers and sisters, the children that are in the room. We thank you for saints of old that can encourage us, that are indeed a part of the cloud of witnesses that urge us to look unto Christ, to look unto he who is the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might run our race with endurance. And so I do pray that even uh, this afternoon that uh, this voice of old might help those of us in the room in ministry to be steadfast and immovable in our work. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, my name is Jordan Stone. I am the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church up in McKinney, which if you're not from the DFW area, that just means we're kind of due north from this building to our church building about 30 uh, 30 miles. And so depending on what time of day, like when I drove down here this morning, it took me an hour and a half uh, to get down here this morning because of traffic, it normally doesn't take that long, but it can take a while. I'm married to Emily, we have six young children. I did last year finish a dissertation on Robert Murray McShane, it's for sale, I believe in the bookstore if you wanted to get it. I always have to kind of preface my shameless self-promotion of the dissertation in saying it is totally an academic work, therefore it is quite boring. And so just understand what you're getting into because everything that we're going to cover today is all in the dissertation and men much, much more. But along the way in my endeavors of writing with McShane, I've, I've got a, a reader, an introductory reader to McShane that I've edited with Reformation Heritage books that should come out later on this year, early next year. And I've got an entirely rewritten version of my dissertation that's going to be out, Lord willing, next year that's completely condensed and hopefully much more accessible and popularized for an ordinary lay member in your church and then lord willing uh, starting this fall uh, i'm working with a publisher trying to write what in in my estimation can be uh, the standard biography of mcshane for the next couple generations so if you ever think about praying for me you can pray for me in that it's about a 10-year project that i have i think along the way but what i want to do to start us off this afternoon is to think about McShane, who was called by a man named A.J. Campbell the characteristic evangelical of this period, 1830s and 1840s in Scotland. And if you know anything about evangelicals in 1830s and 1840s in Scotland, to say McShane was the characteristic evangelical is a massive claim in and of itself over and against, like principally, one man named Thomas Chalmers, if you've ever heard that name before. And so what I want to do is to tell a story that came on a night in November, November 21st, 1830, 39, which in my mind encapsulates McShane's ministry in miniature. So he had been, until this point, about three, uh, sorry, six months before that, he had left for what became known as this famous mission of inquiry to Palestine and back. The Church of Scotland had commissioned this group of four men to do this journey of inquiry. How can we bring the gospel to the Jewish people's basically from Scotland to Palestine and back. And he had been gone for six months along the way, and he showed back up on a Thursday night in Dundee, where he was the pastor of a church named St. Peter's. Now, Thursday nights in St. Peter's were unique evenings in the course of that church's life because it's when they had their weekly prayer meeting. So right after McShane came to that church in... 1836 he instituted what was pretty novel believe it or not for that time in the Scottish churches a weekly prayer meeting and it was quickly attended by some 800 different people every Thursday night and it was doubtless he said they would doubtless be meetings remembered in eternity with songs of praise people never really wanted to get out of those prayer meetings because they felt to do so would to be leaving the very presence of God itself and so you had a church full at this time full would have meant something close to 1,100 people, maybe even closer if they fit everybody in as was happening on this Thursday night in 1839, 1,200 people into a small building. You'll see it up on the screen in just a minute. The aisles were packed. The pews were packed. Children and aged people were on the stairs. They're waiting for their pastor to come back for the first time in six months. They had these major reports from the deputation that made it into Scottish newspapers. It was like headline news of the day, what this des- deputation was doing. Well, what's he going to say after six months away? What's he going to talk about related to his experience? What kind of tales of God's grace throughout Europe is he going to talk about? And he gets there, and he begins to lead the church in song, lead the church in prayer, and then he doesn't tell them anything about his trip to Israel and back. Because what he does is he opens up his Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and preaches a sermon. If you know that passage, you know that's where Paul says, I resolved to preach among you Jesus Christ and Him crucified in dependence upon the Spirit. And so he proceeded to preach a moving sermon. And what you need to know also about this time in 1839 when McShane came back, he came back into a congregation that was very much in the throes of revival. And it was a revival that was begun under a man named William Chalmers Burns, who himself was one of the mightiest preachers in Scotland during... During this time, it was even said that he could out-preach Spurgeon. So great was William Chalmers Burns. And so this is St. Peter's in and around the time of McShane. This is what it looks like today when I was there just a couple of years ago. William Chalmers Burns had basically started preaching uh, revival sermons in August of 1839. And it didn't take very long for those sermons to, in every way, catch a spiritual fire that meant every single night there were meetings at the church and at least a thousand people would be there. Along the way there was something like thirty eight different prayer gatherings happening throughout the city. It was said in the newspapers at the time that it was as though the entire city was awakened. And McShane had been praying for years and years that revival would come and It came when he wasn't there. And so he comes back, and we'll actually think about that more in a minute. He comes back and he wants to preach a sermon. He's got people in the throes of revival. And so he preaches from this pulpit, which is actually still in the church. It's just in the basement. And he preaches from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And after the sermon, what he ends up doing is he goes home and writes to his parents, I never preached to such an audience. So many weeping, so many waiting for the words of eternal life. I never heard such sweet singing anywhere, so tender and affecting as if the people felt they were praising a present God outpourings of enthusiasm, outpourings of emotion. So this is St. Peter's right here. Uh, After preaching his sermon on that night in November, he walks with a crowd about half a mile to where his house would have been in this building right here. And he's so struck by the emotions of the crowd in the moment that outside of his front door, he preaches yet another sermon uh, unto the people listening there. And so it was a long night. And then he basically walks into his door and he records later on in his diary It's just the language, isn't it, of Psalm 115. To thy name, O Lord, to thy name, O Lord, be all the glory. And if you wanted, this is my argument, to know McShane's ministry in miniature, it's all in that night. Preaching Christ, emphasizing the vitality and power of the Spirit longing for revival, these really rich gospel friendships where these men encouraging one another in their gospel ministry that brought incredible success into the evangelical churches in the Church of Scotland. But in addition uh, to that, what you have is his missionary mind because he's coming back from a missionary endeavor. And in his seminary days, he was really struggling with whether or not to be Uh, one who was called to the foreign missionary field in this burgeoning modern missions movement in the Church of Scotland. Singing, preaching, praying, all of these things are big in McShane's ministry, and all of it's encapsulated in these few hours on a November night in 1839. And so what I want to do is tease out with you along the way this afternoon is why we should even care about people like Robert Murray McShane. So I would assume that Because you're in here today, you would agree that we should probably care about him at some meaningful level. Maybe you're not, but just in case, we want to make sure we understand the argument there. Uh, Tommy Kidd recently said, One of Americans' favorite pastimes is establishing their moral superiority by denouncing dead people. Every week brings news stories of some politicians scoring points or a university cleansing itself by removing a name, a monument, or in some other way purifying our historical memory. Now what's much better is an apostolic uh, exhortation that we do get in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And I think what's helpful as we think about historical heroes and learning from men and women in the past is that we do have a biblical exhortation to do that. Uh, The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me. Here in Philippians, he expands it out. Imitate those who are keeping the apostolic example, the pattern of ministry uh, that you find. And I do believe that McShane represents that. So why care about McShane himself? Uh, One way to think about it is what Charles Spurgeon said about this famous book that has made McShane's name in many ways continually timeless in Reformed churches. A few of you have read this. If you wanted to know the best place to start on McShane, this is it. You can probably get it at the Banner of Truth table at the bookstore. But Spurgeon said to his students, it's one of the best and most profitable volumes ever published. The memoir of such a man surely ought to be in the hands of every Christian and certainly every preacher of the gospel. So there's the prince giving him an endorsement. What's also important for us to recognize about McShane is what he didn't do. He died at the age of 29. He was only two months away from turning 30. He thus was quite young. So in some ways, he didn't have a lifetime to make many major mistakes. And and what that means is when we study historical heroes, we think of of Martin Luther, and he's got his diatribe against the Jews and their lies. If you think of John Calvin, he's got uh, this problem often in Calvinian studies about Michael Servetus. You've got a guy like Robert Louis Dabley in our own Southern Presbyterian tradition that has slavery. These major sins and struggles along the way that causes many Christians today to wonder, well, maybe we should just pay attention to someone else because we don't have to deal with all that error. And I think we can still deal with all of the positive things in people that I just mentioned, but with McShane, what's unique, and as we're going to see in a few minutes, he's not perfect, but he doesn't have these major contextual sins attached to his life and ministry, and so there's a degree of, I think, luster that we can look at in McShane as it relates to ordinary gospel ministry that is especially unique and, I hope, helpful. And then the other thing to recognize is he did die at 29. I just had a conversation with a brother in our denomination at lunch today, or before lunch today, who's wanting to do a Ph.D. dissertation on McShane, and his supervisor says, well, there's not enough in McShane's archive to do a dissertation on him. And the point would be if we got into the archive, there's actually much more there in terms of his correspondence, sermons, his journals, his notebooks. There's a treasure trove that he left us in only seven years worth of ministry. So there's a lot that we can learn about this brother even though he did live a very short life and his ministry was even shorter. And so I think we want to think about these things that we have confidence that we're paying attention to someone that ought to teach us. So here's my modest, possibly modest proposal for why we ought to think about McShane. And this is my more academic way of saying it. He represents a faithful prototype of evangelical Presbyterian power. And I'm gonna summarize that in different words in a minute. But the point would be, if you don't know McShane's story, He essentially dies two months before what's known as the Great Disruption of 1843, which one Scottish historian said was the cataclysmic event in all of Scotland in the 19th century. That's when the Free Church... Was created. It broke away from the Church of Scotland. And he was said to be the characteristic evangelical of that period, which is a huge claim in Scottish Presbyterian studies. There was this ongoing tension between moderates and evangelicals in the Church of Scotland for the entire duration of McShane's ministry. It's something called the Ten Years Conflict. And all of his ministry is set against the backdrop of moderates and evangelicals vying for power in the Church of Scotland. Whose agenda, whose vision, is going to win out for the Kirk, and McShane, even though in many of those conversations, he's only like 26 years old, but he's looked to it as something of a leader in the evangelical movement in such a great church, at least in terms of its historical significance as the Church of Scotland, and we could also say then with this sentence, we could adjust it to say he's a prototype of 19th century evangelical Presbyterian power. But I do think his ongoing influence and our ongoing interest even into the 21st century demonstrates his legacy and his need to learn or our need to learn from him. And the other thing to represent with the idea of power is I do think there is a reason why we think of him today in 30, 40 years on from his death, he was a household name in Scotland. And there's a powerful luster in his ministry. So if we wanted to say it differently and more simply, his model of gospel ministry can, and probably should, convict and comfort today's gospel ministers. So I wanted to play a little bit more of an open-ended, open-handed line there. It It can. It probably should. Maybe you'll get through the content today and wonder, ah, man, there's not much in there that we can really learn from. But I do hope uh, you will learn something along the way. And so what I want to think about then is his enduring value under two simple lessons he would have us learn. And these are lessons that he himself brought to us. But before we do that, let's get some of his biography down a little bit for those of you who don't know it. He was born on May 21st, 1813, in Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, to Adam and Lockhart McShane. He was the youngest of five children. Interestingly enough, none of the four surviving McShane children ever married. Uh, McShane would die at 29. His oldest brother, David, would die at 27. His fourth sibling, who was born, of course, before him, was a a daughter who died in infancy. And so only two of the five McShane children ever lived into adulthood, and they did live for quite a while. And he was born into Edinburgh. His dad was a lawyer, essentially, at this time in Scotland. He made quite a bit of money. So McShane was born into what we would now think of as a degree of privilege. He had great education. He didn't want for anything. It was very clear early on that he had a winning personality. You would put him in any Sunday school class, any church class, and he would quickly emerge as popular, He would be a leader. He would be looked to as someone of influence. He also had incredible intellectual abilities. That's famously articulated with this story of him getting sick as a four-year-old, and he learns the Greek alphabet as an amusement at this time. And so he also loved athletics, particularly gymnastics. He was very good at sketching and artistry. He had a poet's bent. I remember someone saying he wasn't very good at poetry. uh, But nonetheless, he was born into a nominally Christian family. They early on attended this church in Edinburgh, Tron Church. After it was erected, they went to St. Stephen's, and in God's providence, they exchanged what was a moderate. Church ministry for an evangelical church ministry, and at Saint Stephen's, the reason they went there is just because it was closer to home. There wasn't any sort of doctrinal convictions leading the family to move to Saint Stephen's, but it was there that he was well known for his love for Christ. He could recite the catechism answers. He could sing the psalms with an unusual sweetness, is what they would often say. But he would later on reckon these early teenage years in the churches as nothing more than years of what he would say as a pure morality, and in his heart. He was little more than a Pharisee. And so he was converted at the age of 18. The cataclysmic event for him was the death of his older brother David in July of 1831. He came down with a serious fever and died. And David was very much, who's nine years older than McShane, he was very much his spiritual mentor. By this point, David was genuinely converted to Christ. He was very much impressing upon his siblings, eternal realities. And then in the course of one summer. Summer. His second oldest brother, William, he's kind of shipped off to India with the, uh, the India Medical Service. And they had been close, all the McShane children at this time. And William's uh, departure kind of disrupted their harmony. And then very soon after that, David dies. And so Robert's world is completely shaken by the death of his brother. And later on, when he was eventually a pastor, he wrote to a young boy in his parish talking about his brother David. I had a kind brother, as you have, who taught me many things. He gave me a Bible, persuaded me to read it. He tried to train me as a gardener trains the apple tree upon the wall. And all in vain, I thought myself far wiser than he, and would always take my own way, and many a time I well remember I've seen him reading his Bible or shutting his closet door to pray when I have been dressing to go to some frolic or some dance of folly, because McShane did love to dance as a teenager. And the exact timing then of his conversion isn't clear, but he later on would essentially date his conversion to the day his older brother died. 11 years on in his journal, he said, This day, 11 years ago, I lost my loved and loving brother, began to seek a brother, capital B, uh, a brother who cannot die. And so just two months on, two and a half months on, September 28, 1831, McShane stands before the presbytery in Edinburgh to be examined as a potential student for the gospel ministry. He's eventually received into the presbytery. He attends what's now called Edinburgh Theological Seminary. It's at the University of Edinburgh at the time. It was called the Divinity Hall at the University of Edinburgh. And it's there that he studies under the leading lights of Scottish evangelical uh, Presbyterianism. Uh, Especially most important is Thomas Chalmers, who was in every way his mentor and the one that guided him on the nature of theology and gospel ministry. Alexander Brunton was, believe it or not, is actually his moderate church pastor from Chon Church, Edinburgh, that taught Hebrew. David Welsh taught him how to preach. And then these are his two closest friends, Andrew Bonar and Alexander Somerville. We'll mention them more in a few minutes. And so he graduates from seminary in November of 1835 and he's quickly uh, received as an assistant pastor to John Bonar in this united parish of Larbert and Dunapace, which is a more rural country area. He was only there for about eight months until he was eventually received to be the pastor at St. Peter's in Dundee, which was a congregation, at least in terms of what it could seat, 1,100 people. But it was the first, he was going to be the first pastor at St. Peter's. It was essentially a church plant of another Uh, church in Dundee, St. John's, which was led by a man named John Roxborough, and right after it was or I'm sorry, before McShane came, uh, they had been looking for a pious, active, efficient preacher who would excavate a congregation. That's the language we would use today of church planting, who would essentially plant a congregation. They just built him a building, and now we're going to go find the guy that's essentially going to cultivate and shepherd this people. But the language that they had used was excavate a congregation for himself from uh, the surrounding district. And so he got there, it's it's a gallery of 1,100 seats. I think I have a picture somewhere here. 1,100 seats was full from the start. Uh, Dr. Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson, is an elder at St. Peter's today. And I remember being over there a couple of years ago, and I, one of the first questions I asked him was, how did 1,100 people get in this room? Because it really is kind of small. And it's got a balcony above, which adds seeds. But Dr. Ferguson, in his inimitable way, leaned in and said, well, you know, Jordan, people were much smaller back then. <laughs> and they also didn't have a problem with smells uh, because you, know, you didn't bathe as frequently, uh, but it's very true. It would have been absolutely packed in very much feeling like a standing room only environment every Lord's Day when McShane was preaching. So he ministers there for essentially seven years, two three-year periods that's interrupted by this six-month mission to Palestine and back. And then it was in March of 1843, two months before he would have turned 30, that he contracts typhus fever. And he Dies pretty quickly after that. And it was said in his kind of last hours of life that he had lifted up his hands as if in the attitude of pronouncing a blessing, and then he sank down, not a groan or a sigh, but only a quiver of the lip, and his soul was at rest. And he was subsequently buried just on the south side of the church building, and his Grave is still there today, and tombstone. This is what it would say on it if you ever happen to be in Dundee. So that's a very quick overview of McShane's life. We'll deal with more of it uh, along the way. But what I want to think about is okay, if we're saying, uh, I guess I'm saying, McShane still speaks to us today. He can encourage us. He can convict us. He can comfort us in our gospel ministry. Well, how does he uniquely do that? Well, there are just two things that I would want to emphasize, two things that he would have us learn about the gospel ministry. And these aren't things that I have kind of synthesized together. They're things that he himself said ought to be the consuming concern of any gospel minister. He once wrote to William Burns, who I put up there earlier. He said, I feel there are two things it is impossible to desire with sufficient ardor, personal holiness and the honor of Christ in the salvation of souls. So if you were to ask McShane, gospel ministers give their attention to what? He would say, personal holiness and the salvation of sinners is the all-consuming desire of any true minister of Jesus Christ. And even another contemporary observed of McShane, two things. He never seems to have ceased from the cultivation of personal holiness and the most anxious efforts to save souls. And so what I want to think about is just those two lessons that McShane would have us learn and the unique spin. This is where I'm kind of arguing we've misunderstood McShane at certain levels in past decades of study. The spin that he would put on it, which is in this idea of Christological love, which we'll kind of tease out in a few minutes. But first of all, he would say a faithful gospel ministry is one of personal holiness as the return of love to Christ. And I'll kind of tell you why in a minute why that is an important way for us to think about it. So when he was on this mission of inquiry, starts out all the way up here, goes down here, his constant companion for the entire trip, especially this duration back home part of the trip, because they divided into two teams of two on the way back, was his friend Andrew Bonar. And Andrew Bonar recorded in his diaries how struck he was by the sincerity and simplicity and constancy of McShane's attention to personal holiness. He said, unabated. McShane's unabated attention to personal holiness challenged his own laziness. He said, "...personal holiness was never absent from his mind, whether he was at home in his quiet chamber, on the sea, or in the desert." Holiness in him was manifested not by efforts to perform duty, but in a way so natural that you recognize therein the easy outflowing of the indwelling spirit. And one thing to note there is also this man named Robert Canlish, who is basically McShane's Presbyterian patron. He kind of eased McShane into the life in the Church of Scotland in a very influential way. Outside of Thomas Chalmers, when the Free Church began in 1843, no one was more influential than Canlish And he once quipped to one of McShane's friends, a guy named Alexander Moody Stewart, he said, I can't understand him. Grace seems to be natural to him. There was an Unbelievable sincerity that people would talk about related to McShane. He wasn't one of those people that just emphasized personal holiness and then you would look at their life and say, Well, I guess I see why he's emphasizing it because he's just got a long way to go in it. It's more, Wow, he is preaching a lesson that he is still learning, yes, but she sure seems to have learned a lot for such a young individual. And So along the way within his ministry of personal holiness, he would encourage peoples along these lines. So the next three slides are, frankly, the most famous quotes that you probably would see in other books about McShane. He wrote to Burns, "O oh, cry for personal holiness, constant nearness to God by the blood of the Lamb, bask in His beams, lie back in the arms of love, be filled with His Spirit, or all success in ministry will only be to your everlasting confusion. He told a school leader, this is a woman that he was encouraging who was leading a school of Christian girls. He said, Seek much personal holiness and likeness to Christ and all the features of His blessed character. Seek to be lamb-like, without which all your efforts to do good to others will be sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And then this probably is the most famous part of his letters in terms of what people remember of McShane today. He wrote to another Scottish pastor, remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust the chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. And he said, in great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument will be the success. It's not great talents that God blesses, as much as great likeness to Jesus a holy minister is an awful weapon that means awesome amazing incredibly effective weapon in the hand of god and that last the last two sentences are what often get quoted about McShane. If you've heard anything in a book about McShane, you've probably heard some sort of a quote that says, the greatest need or what my people need for me more than anything else, there are variants of this quote out there, is my personal holiness. That's a very popular quote of his. I want you to know he never said it. So uh, There is nothing in anything he's ever written that said he said that. He said a lot of things like it. And what we want to emphasize here is it's not great Talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus Christ. And for those of you in here that are in ministry, maybe in an official capacity, it's a point that I would urge you to consider. Do you actually believe that to be true? It is great talents that God doesn't bless. It's great likeness that God does bless. And the reason I think we can say that even biblically is 2 Timothy 2. There's this part of 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, where Paul is encouraging Timothy, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as wholly useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And what I'm wanting to kind of dive into in just a very quick way this afternoon is I'm longing for a rebirth, a revival, a new generation of ministers and church leaders in our denomination that agree with that sentiment. It is not personalities or platforms that will drive faithful churches, it is leaders men, women, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, that their preoccupation in their life is to love Jesus Christ and be conformed to His character and just watch what God does with such simplicity and sincerity of devotion. Because McShane's life, I think, bears that out along the way. So what I want to do then with this kind of point of personal holiness is essentially talk about why McShane is unique in his emphasis on personal holiness. And the way you can get that, I think illustrated best, is the first two sermons he preached at St. Peter's Dundee. So, you know, oftentimes you can kind of get the pastor's personal agenda in the first sermons that he preaches. Maybe it's his candidating sermon. Maybe it's his first sermon after he's installed. What's going to be his vision? What's going to be his passion for this people? Well, when McShane preached his first candidating sermon, well, it was his only candidating sermon at St. Peter's in August of 1836. Okay, I'm going to preach to maybe become the pastor of this soon-to-be 1,100-person church. What shall I choose as my text? Some of you in here who are pastors will think, well, I chose this on my candidating sermon. Well, he turned to Song of Songs, chapter 2. And I'm sure you might have never heard a candidating sermon from a soon-to-be, possibly soon-to-be senior pastor from the Song of Solomon. But McShane said this right at the outset of his sermon to St. Peter's. Speaking of Song of Songs, If a man has felt his need of Christ and been brought to cleave unto him, now, Song of Songs language, if you're familiar with these phrases, as the chiefest among 10,000 and the altogether lovely, then this book, Song of Songs, will be inestimably precious to his soul, for it contains the tenderest breathings of the believer's heart towards the Savior and the tenderest uh, breathings of the Savior's heart again towards the believer. He would go on just a couple paragraphs later to essentially say, do you want to know what a man's spirituality looks like? Ask him what he thinks about the Song of Songs. I doubt you've heard that in a sermon before. We, of course, understand the song and songs probably differently than McShane, or many of you, if you're something like me, actually somewhat similarly. He was very common in his understanding of the song as being little more than a parable about Christ's love for the church and the church's love for their Savior. It was very common at that time. But the point of emphasis here is what McShane would do. He's often remembered, in our circles at least, but I think in general evangelical circles as this man who is incredibly devoted to the means of grace, the word and prayer in particular. Now, if you dive into McShane's diary, but especially his sermons, and this is where the conversation on McShane has gone astray in decades past, as they've paid attention to his journal, and not his sermons, what he said about pursuing holiness, he had a very novel way of conceiving about the pursuit of personal godliness. When he would talk about the means of grace, word, sacraments, and prayer, he would talk about them most frequently under this idea of being trysts. So he would talk about the prayer closet as the trysting place with Jesus Christ, as the Lord's Day, as the trysting hour with the Savior. And if you know what tryst means, it means a secret meeting between lovers. For McShane, what it was, essentially through faith in Jesus Christ, we know God's love in Christ, and then we return love to Him by communing with Him through the means of grace. Why is it then that he was so eager to pray for two hours in the morning, start his Lord's Day with four hours of uninterrupted devotion to prayer and the Word? It was there that he met the chiefest among 10,000. It was there that he met the one whom his soul loved. And so later on in his letters, he would often speak With these Song of Songs language, like I trust that you are seeking after the one whom your soul loves. Or on a Sabbath, he would write, rose early to seek the one whom my soul loveth. Who would not want to be with such a Savior on that day? Or he wrote to another, if you cannot say, I found him whom my soul loveth, it is not sweet that you can say, I am sick of love as well. So, personal holiness is the return of love to Christ understanding the means of grace as trysts between the Savior and his people. The second sermon he preached at St. Peter's was on November 24th, 1836. This was after his installation. So what text is he gonna pick that day? I remember at my current church, the text I picked was Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Well, McShane turned to another Old Testament book, which is the Old Testament book he preached from most frequently, which was the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. And if you know Isaiah 61, he he focused in that first few clauses on a ministry that is resting on the Spirit, because it's there that the servant of Isaiah 61 says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he said in that sermon, the more anointing, Of the Holy Spirit that a minister gets, the more success will the minister have. He also further extolled the Holy Spirit as the greatest of all the privileges of a Christian, adding So, think about this with what I was just saying related to trysts. It is sweet to get the love of Christ, but I will tell you what is equally sweet that is, to receive the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So, McShane's pattern of personal holiness was little more. In union and communion with Christ by the Spirit, which led Andrew Bonar to offer this uh, strange comment in, in the memoir, but perceptive comment nonetheless. An experienced servant of God has said that while popularity is a snare that few are not caught by, a more subtle and dangerous snare is to be famed for holiness. The fame of being a godly man is as great a snare as the fame of being learned or eloquent. It's possible to attend with scrupulous anxiety, even to secret habits of devotion, in order to get a name for holiness." And if any were exposed to this snare in his day, McShane was the person, yet nothing was more certain than that to the very last he was ever discovering in successfully resisting the deceitful tendencies of his own heart and attempting devil. And here's where McShane would disagree with his close friend, successfully resisting. Because what McShane did in late 1842, possibly it was early 1843, just a few months before he died, he wrote what he called his reformation. It came in two parts, personal reformation, and then it came in reformation in secret prayer. And you kind of read that quote along the way, the paragraph of his opening volley in that document there. But what he talks about along the way in the personal reformation, you can find this on Google Books because the memoirs on there. He talks about everywhere where he is falling short in his ministry. So he's 29 years old at this time. He's having a crisis of conscience in some ways. He's, what, uh, almost seven years into his ministry ministry at St. Peter's, and like many ministers will do throughout their ministry, he's thinking, what on earth am I doing? And a level I'm going to talk about in a minute related to him becoming an itinerant evangelist, but also why have I not grown in holiness as much as I should have by now? Because what he does in the Reformation is go on to say there are two particular struggles that he is not putting to death. And just to kind of collapse it for the sake of time, he talks about both of them as lusts. He says, first of all, the lust of praise has ever been my besetting sin. And how many pastors today, of course, would say the same thing? The lust of praise has ever been our bosom sin. But he went on to say, I am helpless in respect of every lust that ever was or will ever be in the human heart. I am a worm, a beast before God. I often tremble to think this is true. Why did God leave the roots of lasciviousness and pride in my bosom? He hates sin and I hate it. Why did He not take it clean away? Here's the point. McShane would say at this point in his ministry, the two assaults for his own life and personal holiness where he was so desperate to grow in most was the lust of pride and the lust, and he was very... Understandably cryptic for it in the document of sexual sin, of lustful thoughts is what he seems to be pointing at with his words of lasciviousness along the way. And I mention that because what you can get in many traditions still today related to McShane is often him being little more than the closest thing Reformed and Presbyterians have in a Scots tradition of a saint. And McShane would say, don't hold me up that high. What you need to hold up is the Savior. So he would talk about the tendency among people, thinking about the language from Numbers 21 with uh, the brazen serpent, that we take pastors and put them up on the pole and say, look at the pastor, and he's going to show you the way to Christ. And he would say, no, we pastors are just the pole, and we place the Savior on that pole, and look at him. And this is the way that you will find salvation and newness of life. And so I don't say that to necessarily disparage his legacy in any way. I just want to make sure you have a human understanding of McShane. That just a few months before his death, there was a genuine internal struggle in his heart Why am I just a worm in my sin before the Lord? But an earnestness and sincerity of what he was striving after to do something about that. So the second point to note along the way, and this one is a little bit faster to hopefully get us to a point where we can have questions in about 10 or 15 minutes. I just want to bring out what McShane would say related to evangelism. The gospel ministry is a ministry of personal holiness as the return of love to Christ. And gospel ministry is secondarily a ministry of evangelism as proclaiming the love of Christ. He said in a sermon on Ephesians chapter 4, I think I can, never, I think I can say, I have never risen a morning without thinking how I could bring more souls to Christ. It is not the work of a minister to wear peculiar garb or to baptize, nor is it the work of a minister to marry. This is not the work of the ministry. The great use of the ministry, engrave it upon your hearts, tell it to your children, the use of the ministry is to convert your soul. Conformity to Christ and conversion to Christ. That's the pillar the two pillars of McShane's ministry. Evidently, he preached about conversion so much. He said in a sermon, many in my church are angry at me because I preach about uh, conversion so much. And then there's another sermon where he's preaching on hell, and he says, many of you are angry at me because I preach on hell so much. But he says, would it not be true that we wouldn't love you if we didn't tell you of the fire to come? And what you want to then see, and hopefully maybe be encouraged by today, is McShane saw... A heart enraptured in love for Christ. You want to understand a very childlike simplicity to his spirituality. A heart that loves Christ inevitably is a heart that loves to speak about Christ. And if we're not doing the latter, we have reason to wonder about the former, is what he would say. And so how did he do that? How did he go about evangelism? Well, we could talk about his preaching, and maybe you might have questions in a few minutes on his preaching It was quite unique in some ways. But what he would say about preaching in Scotland at a time of many great preachers is that it was going wrong on a particular point. He says, I would observe what appears to me to be a fault in the preaching of our beloved Scotland. More ministers are accustomed to set Christ before the people. They lay down the gospel clearly and beautifully, but they do not urge men to enter in. Now God says, exhort, beseech men, Persuade men not only to point to the open door, but to compel them to come in. Oh, that we would be more merciful to souls and that we would lay hands on men and draw them into the Lord. And again, if you're kind of thinking about the biblical echoes of what he's saying, that it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 language where Paul says in verse 11 of that chapter, Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. So he's preaching Christ with unusual passion and fervor. It's partly why his ministry was so blessed. He was an incredible preacher, I would say. But forgotten in McShane's model of evangelism are a couple points. This one's a little bit more well-known. He was diligent in house-to-house visitation. He would keep these journals of all the conversations he would have with these individuals in the house-to-house visitation. So, for example, this one on the upper left. Anne Moody visited the 31st of January, 1837 visited again on February 7th, visited again on February 21st. That text in red is the scripture passage that he was exhorting her in. 20 homes a day he normally would visit in Dundee to, to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a ministerial pattern he learned under this guy John Bonar at Larbert in Dunapace where McShane told his parents in his first pastoral charge, nothing is better in ministry than going and visiting people house to house but you want to know with McShane because I think this is actually where we need to see him as more of an evangelist than a shepherd those meetings were primarily evangelistic in orientation interestingly enough he he dabbled in medicine so he would show up at these people's houses because you know medicine in terms of its expertise was uh, not readily available and so some doctors in Nundee got to a point where they were having to tell McShane stop giving medical advice you're telling people wrong diagnoses like leave them alone You keep to the spiritual stuff, we'll keep to the medical stuff. So he would do all kinds of stuff on his visitations. But what he would say is the best thing we can do in our household visitations is to bring them to Jesus Christ. And so in one of his journals on the first page, what he wrote were rules for remembering in visitation. He says, when visiting a family member, whether ministerially or otherwise, speak particularly to the strangers about eternal things. Perhaps God has brought you there just to save their soul. Number two, evangelism in children. This is what is often forgotten, I think, most about McShane is he had a passion for children. He wrote a well-received track, Reasons Why Children Should Fly to Christ Without Delay, in which he said, among many other things, Youth is a day of grace. If you intend to come to Jesus and be saved, there is not time so seasonable as the time of one's youth. You can't really find a sermon McShane ever preached where he doesn't speak directly to the children, directly to the youth. I've listened to a lot of PCA preaching that is much more rare than it should be. Speak directly to the children, directly to the covenant youth, knowing that God is speaking to them in the preaching of his word as well. But it wasn't just in his preaching. He also pursued these innovative strategies. So, for example, he started a Sunday school in 1837, which was quite novel for the Scottish church at that time. And what that meant was there was a special service for the children at 8 a.m. on Sundays, and then the actual Sunday school would happen in the evening from 6 to 8 p.m. About 150 students were there. So that's probably about age 10 and down. And those who were older, the teenagers, he started a Tuesday night meeting, which he was normally working through the shorter catechism, which quickly came to have at least 250 teenagers that would show up on Tuesday nights. And he was walking through the catechism, singing songs, coming up with poems, to teach them the doctrines of our faith. And then he also started a weekday school for children. And that met at night because many of those children worked in the Dundee factories during the day and there was over 300 children that was part of essentially St. Peter's school. And he reminded the teachers of that school, the chief use of the school is to convert the souls of children. So evangelism, to children, evangelism and church extension. This is the way that they would talk about church planting in the 1830s. He was the secretary for two different church extension committees and I'll let you just kind of scan your way through that quote. This was written to uh, another brother in Dundee who was passionate about church extension in which McShane's kind of revealing his own heart. He seemed to say that what Scotland needed most were more churches. We say many things like that today. Interestingly, in the ecclesiastical context of the time, it was quite divisive because the moderates thought people like McShane were only so zealous about church planting because it just put more moderate uh, evangelicals in the church courts. They weren't interested in saving souls. They just wanted more evangelical pastors to have church posts, to have a vote on all the church issues threatening the Church of Scotland at the time. Here's a striking thing to think about, though, with McShane's work in church extension. And this no one really remembers because it 's kind of tucked away in a notebook, he was in one uh, course of a year essentially going about raising funds for church extension work. and what he collected from over two hundred why well, he helped erect nearly two hundred churches, and what he collected in the course of helping erect those nearly 200 churches was' three hundred thousand pounds over the course of his work. Now that might not mean much to you. I remember I put that in my dissertation and Dr. Ferguson read it and said, hey, you're going to have to put that in modern terms because no one's going to understand how much money that is. So I put it in modern terms and that's over $40 million dollars that he raised for the work of church planting. Context matters. This is a national church. People, of course, probably much more likely to give substantial sums at that time. But here you have a man laboring for church planting, and the equivalent of what he was able to raise for these over 200 churches being planted was in today's terms something close to $41 million. And the final thing to think about related to McShane's ministry was evangelism. As I said earlier, he was always passionate about evangelism. He was particularly interested in the work of Jonathan Edwards and the narrative of of revival that he put out there, this narrative of surprising conversion in Northampton in the 1730s. And so he was always praying for revival. He was always praying for showers of the Spirit. He loved to talk about the dew of the Spirit uh, falling upon uh, the churches. And he would write along the way um, this document, which, which became a tract, but it was originally a sermon. Why is God a stranger in this land? In other words, why is there no revival in Scotland? He said, we do not invite sinners tenderly. We do not gently woo them to Christ. We do not compel them to come in. We do not travail in birth till Christ be formed in them the hope of glory. Oh, who can wonder that God is such a stranger in the land? And If you just kind of work your way through that sermon, which you can find, I think it's in the memoir. Yeah, it's in the memoir. Uh, What he he does is say, you want to know the precursors and the prerequisites to revival and his understanding of revival history, prayer, personal holiness, and preaching Christ. The more we have of those things in our churches, the more revival we will see in our time. There's a simplicity, a sincerity to McShane's ministry. And along the way, revival came to Dundee when he wasn't there. We were kind of laughing about that earlier. He expected that to happen. Uh, He thought going away on the missionary, uh, uh, the mission of inquiry to Jerusalem would actually in some ways motivate revival, partly because what he understood about gospel ministry to the Jews you have to evangelize the Jews first before Christ would ever come back. That was kind of his eschatological conviction. Uh, but also he, he said to humble his own pride, he was convinced God would start a revival without him there, to know that he wasn't needed and necessary to bring great spiritual good to his people. One of his friends after his death, I don't know if I have this quote in there, I don't, uh, wrote a memorial of McShane that I think summarizes what he would want to teach us today related to personal holiness as a return of love to Christ, proclaiming Christ love in our evangelism. He said, I never knew one so instant in season and out of season, so impressed with the invisible realities and so faithful in reproving sin and witnessing for Christ. Love to Christ was the great secret of all his devotion and consistency, and not since the days of Samuel Rutherford, if you know anything about Samuel Rutherford, has there been a more seraphic mind in our church in Scotland. So what you want to see, and this is the twist that I'm increasingly trying to promote and try to publish as what we want to understand about McShane, is that his spiritual life, his ministerial life, was little more than knowing God's love in Jesus Christ through the gospel and then returning love to Christ through communion with him. You kind of work with these prepositions to work it out in the way it came in McShane's ministry in that he labored to point people to the love of Christ and lead them to show love to Christ in their pursuit of him through the word, prayer, and sacraments. He said spirituality, piety, godliness begins when we behold Christ's love and it continues when we express love to Christ in return. So if you ask McShane, I think he would agree with this statement. Why is it that personal holiness is such a passion? I think he would essentially say that that is the mature expression of a heart that loves Christ. Why is personal evangelism such a passion? That's a mature declaration of a heart that is in love with Jesus Christ. So if McShane teaches us anything, amidst all the other things he could teach us, I think he would have us land there. It's the love of Christ that constrains us. He would say, take care of the depth of your love for Christ. And the Lord's going to take care of the breadth of your labors for Christ as you grow in the Spirit and with the love of Jesus Christ. And so I just end with this quote from Andrew Bonar, which kind of at the end of his biography of McShane said, Are we never afraid that the cries of souls whom we have betrayed to perdition through our want of personal holiness and our defective preaching of Christ crucified may ring in our ears forever? I think there's a simplicity, I think there's a sincerity, I think there's an urgency in even that rhetorical question that's needing revival in our churches today.
0: You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.